this our Simondon reading group meeting possibly for the last time on this book, depending on how far we get today. Uh, we are picking up from page 182 of the translation, so just before the conclusion. So we're on part four, still on the last section of this part about technical invention. So I, I mentioned I, in the last couple of sessions, I think I've mentioned that this whole part of the book is, or of the lectures, is closely connected to Simondon's um, other main book that we read a couple of years ago now um, on the mode of existence of technical objects. So in that book, he's like, there's a few different projects that he's engaged in in that book. Uh, and so the first part of that book, he's looking at what it is for there to be a, a lineage of technical objects. So what, what, does it, what is it about a technical object that makes it a descendant of some other technical object? And his answer to that question is um, in terms of uh, concretization. So um, uh, just to sort of quickly summarize, um, concrete is, uh, a technical object is more concrete than another technical object insofar as the, the more concrete technical object has a greater integration of functions uh, among its components. So in, a, in an abstract technical object, each component contributes just one function to the functioning of the whole object, um, whereas in a more concrete one, all the different effects of the different components on each other are all integrated into the functioning of the object. And so what this means in particular for um, uh, in relation to individuation, which is sort of Simon Dohn's like key concept, is that um, uh, an abstract technical object tends to destroy itself through its functioning. So you have the one function that a component contributes to the functioning of the whole, but then you also have all sorts of side effects that are undesired. You have like noise, friction, um, uh, wear of gears against each other, things like that. Um, so um, all these other effects uh, sort of tend to destroy the functioning of the entire um, technical object, whereas in a more concrete technical object, all the different effects are incorporated, or as many effects as possible, are incorporated into, um, into the functioning of the technical object. And so that means that you have fewer side effects and less of a self-destructive nature of the object. So um, this is a kind of individuation because um, the, the entity now um, sort of persists in being in, in a way that it didn't before, or it, it, um, it's, its operation or you know, the, what it does um, uh, is, it has a sort of self-reinforcing uh, nature that it didn't have before. Uh, so that's just sort of a quick overview of this concept of concretization, which is kind of in the background in, in this discussion. He doesn't, I don't think, uh, explicitly give us a, a presentation of what um, what concretization is, but it's, it's always sort of uh, in mind in, uh, in, the last, in, in this last bit that we've read. Um, and um, yeah, so he, he's looked at, um, he's given us a few different examples of technical objects, and uh, we don't need to go through all of them again, but... Um, one thing that he um, sort of makes clear in, in this bit is the contrast between um, sort of intrinsic technical development, so this process of concretization, and then more extrinsic um, operations that affect the development of technical objects. Uh, so you can think here, um, like an example that he uses in On the Mode of Existence of Technical Objects is um, the development of cars. Um, so if you just sort of take the core functioning of a car, it's just uh, a motor that makes wheels turn and then uh, uh, you know, a, a chassis and a, a cabin for the, the driver and passengers and you know, um, any uh, objects they're, they're transporting, et cetera. Um, this, this is sort of like the, the 
pure schema of a car. Um, uh, and then you can have technical developments that make this pure schema more concrete or you know, technically better in various ways. You can have a more powerful engine, for example, um, a more efficient engine in terms of fuel efficiency, uh, things like that. Um, but if you look at the historical evolution of cars, there's all kinds of other things that are sort of accessory to this that um, are largely designed to make the car more uh, either more comfortable for the, the passengers and driver or um, or that have this sort of um, uh, semiotic nature or semiotic um, uh, intention. So that what they like. So he talks about um, power steering, for example, he, he argues that um, uh, in most cars, power steering, or at least in the cars of his um, era, power steering is not really necessary uh, for the functioning of a car because the the physical um, force of the driver is sufficient for you know turning the wheel and um, transmitting that force to the um, the wheels of the car. Um, so there's no there's no sort of intrinsic necessity to incorporate power steering into the functioning of a car, but uh, power steering what it signifies is like a kind of luxury or like sophistication um, and, and sort of retroactively makes the car with um, manual steering seem sort of uh, old fashioned or like unsophisticated. Um, and so all these sorts of electronics, um, you know, added on to the car's sort of basic functioning had this uh, semiotic role of conveying, you know, sophistication or um, high tech or something along those lines. Uh, and as opposed to, you know, sort of contributing to the basic functioning of the car. And the example that he gives in, in this book that we saw is um, these cars in the 50s that had these uh, aluminum dashboards. Um, and so uh, this is sort of uh, the way Simon Lowe describes it is it's borrowed from um, airplane design where the actual weight of the um, uh, of the interior of the plane is, uh, is important. So minimizing the weight using light metals that have high um, structural integrity is is important, whereas in a car, the difference in weight between like an aluminum dashboard and a I don't know wood or uh, some sort of plastic or whatever um, is, is minimal. It doesn't really affect the actual functioning of the car, but the uh, aluminum has this semiotic function of conveying you know this car is like similar to an airplane. It's very high tech and modern and so on. Um, so yeah, there's this uh, accessory function of you know, uh, conveying something about the owner of a technical object that is sort of um, added on to the intrinsic technical development of the of the object. Um, so that's that's what he's been talking about the the last couple of bits that we've looked at, um, and um, and then he talks about uh, the way that some of these um, sort of uh, the relationship between the the user and the technical object, how it can affect the diffusion of the technical object. So he talks about um, tractors in France, for example, um, the way that in the early years of the 20th century, um, tractors were not really taken up very much in France um, compared to the U.S. Uh, and you know, some people had sort of attributed this to like peasant mentality that you know peasants are conservative and afraid of change and they don't understand technical objects and so on. Um, but then later in sort of the post-World War II era, there start to develop um, the new tractors that have um, more flexibility of function. They, they allow for a variety of different functions to all be incorporated in one technical object. And, and these tractors are um, taken up by peasants or small farmers in France. Um, and so Simon Dong argues that the, the obstacle 
to the diffusion of tractors in France wasn't anything about like peasant mentality or conservatism or whatever. It was just the fact that um, farms in the U.S. are much more likely to be big, uh, flat, square farms as opposed to in France. You have like a variety. You have small farms with a variety of different crops, and um, so instead of like a giant wheat field or a corn field or whatever, where you just drive your tractor back and forth, you doing the same thing for you know, you know hours on end. You have to have a tractor that is flexible that can switch between different tasks. And once the the technical object was adapted to the requirements of those users, they did adopt it. Um, so you can look at um, the the development of technical objects in relation to the um, uh, the needs of the users um, in that sense, and then also like the the more intrinsic development of the technical object in terms of that concretization process. So these are sort of parallel developments, but also they sort of relate to each other reciprocally because, um, you know, like, for example, in, in the case of the tractor, you have to have um, an engine that's sufficiently powerful to um, perform all these different functions, um, uh, but also light enough to fit on a tractor and, you know, not weigh down the whole machine. Um, so, like, these, these two forms of evolution are sort of um, related to each other as well. Uh, and then the last bit that we, so the bit that we're on now um, is looking at other, he, he calls this other categories of created objects. And so he's thinking in particular of aesthetic objects. Um, and, and this is similar in some ways to the creation of technical objects in that um, when you create an artwork, uh, a painting or a piece of music or whatever, you're, you're uh, inventing something, you're creating something new, you're um, bringing about the individuation of something that didn't exist before you um, perform this act of creation. Um, but at the same time, it's, it's different in that um, there's much less in the way of um, uh, sort of incorporation into the, the capacities that exist in the world uh, in the way that a technical object is. So in a technical object, you have to, um, you, you have creativity in inventing a te technical object, but you can only be creative within the limits of what kinds of physical forces are available to you and materials and so on. Um, so you have to take these given um, um, forces and materials and then combine them and use them in, in creative ways. Um, whereas in the creation of an artwork, you have, in some sense, more freedom. You're, obviously, you're still using, like, paint is a physical substance that is produced out of, you know, minerals and plants and so on. Um, but um, you have a certain freedom in terms of you know what you how you want to arrange those colors on a canvas or um you know musical instruments again are physical objects that have um physical properties that limit um you know what types of uh, sounds they can make uh, but at the same time you have um freedom in terms of how you want to arrange those musical notes to um to produce um um uh, sort of uh, musical creations um and then so in relation, so in sort of parallel to, um, is the back? Oh, we lost someone. Oh well. Um, yeah. So in parallel to um, the this sort of distinction between um, between the uh, intrinsic and extrinsic development of technical objects, you can also look at um, this kind of extrinsic use of aesthetics. Um, so one of his uh, examples that he that he um, gives is this use of uh, opticalization, so like high-vis um, sort of uh, decorations added to um, uh, added to objects to make them sort of stand out. Um, and for Simon, no, this is a kind of uh, 
excrescence on an object. It, the aesthetic decoration of this um, optical tape, for example, is, um, is not related to the actual um, structure. Um, so there's like sort of a, an external relationship between the, um, um, between the object itself and the decoration. And another example of this that Simon Don doesn't talk about, but I think um, possibly in individuation, he might have mentioned this, but is like the sort of Baroque style of uh, decoration um, where you have all these like flowers and curlicues and stuff um, applied to uh, mantelpieces and columns and, and things like that. So like you have sort of the basic form of the object and then you just sort of apply flowers like kind of randomly to the shape to make it more beautiful uh, or, you know, supposedly more beautiful. Um, and, and so, again, there's a sort of extrinsic relationship between the actual shape of the object and then this sort of external decoration that's applied to it. And for Simon Don, this is kind of um, not, not really um, creating an art object in, in the proper sense of the term. It's, it's just sort of, um, yeah, it's a kind of uh, extrinsic relationship between the decoration and the object itself and so when when you think of like a real artistic creation there's an intrinsic relationship between the the form of the object the you know whether it's a painting or a musical structure or whatever it is um and then any sort of decoration is is like integrated into that form in in a much more uh in a much closer sense than just applying optical tape to uh you know the, the side of a car or whatever um Okay, so I think that's more or less where we got to last time. So, um, yeah, let's pick up from the... Oh, sorry, we're at 182. Yeah, so let's pick up from the top of 182, if uh, someone else would like to read. I can read. Okay, 182. Uh, from the top? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, right from the top. Okay. Any inventor in the realm of art is futuristic to some extent, which means that he exceeds the... He can of needs and ends by enlisting within the created object sources of those effects that live and multiply in the work. The creator is sensitive to the virtual, to what calls forth from the depths of time and with a humility situated in a distant place. The course of the future and the amplitude of the world is a place of manifestation. The creator saves the phenomena because he is sensitive to what, in each phenomenon, calls for amplifying manifestation, the sign of an enjambment pointing toward the future. He is the person in whom the genesis of images reveals the desire of beings to exist, to exist or rather to exist a second time by being born again in a meaningful universe where each local reality communicates with the universal and where rather than being buried in the past, each instant remains the origin of an echo that multiplies and becomes more nuanced as it diversifies. Um, actually, let's stop here. Sorry. Um, uh yeah, this is a, a pretty important paragraph and pretty dense. So yeah, let's let's stop here and, and discuss this before we go on to the next one. That sounds good. Um, yeah. So um, a couple a couple of points um, on on this part is so there's this phrase um, "save the phenomena," um, which, if you remember, he used already in the introduction of this of the lecture course, um, and he describes the whole project of this course as a phenomenology in the sense of saving the phenomena. Um, and this is a, um, a phrase from Plato. Um, and in Plato, I forget actually which dialogue it comes from, but um, he, it may be the Timaeus, but I'm not sure. Uh, anyway, um, he, he uses this phrase um, to describe astronomical um, uh, model building, I guess you could say in modern terms. Um, so the idea is that 
um, as an observer, an, an observing astronomer, you look at the movement of the stars in the heavens, um, and then you build your your model of the movement of these stars um, uh, in such a way that you reproduce the observed movements of the stars in the heavens. So, like in a, a Ptolemaic system, you have um, circular orbits around the Earth, uh, and then epicycles um, that account for the retrograde movement of planets. Um, and you know this, of course, has sort of been uh, like denigrated in, in later development. You know, epicycles are it, it, the, the word epicycle is used as a sort of um, uh, criticism of um, of uh, a theory, is saying that it, it just sort of applies these arbitrary hypotheses to um, accommodate the predictions. Um, but you know, this was, of course, a, a pretty sophisticated intellectual enterprise of mathematical modeling at the time. Um, you know, uh, postulating these. Um, circular m motions of different uh, uh, celestial bodies to account for the observed movement. Um, and uh, Simon Don was using this phrase, save the phenomena in a somewhat different sense, uh, but, but I think it's connected. But um, it's the idea of putting images back into, um, back into their development and genesis. Um, so we've, like, throughout the whole book, we've been looking at this cycle of the image that he... Um, that he presents. Um, so the image um, prior to the object, so this is sort of the um, anticipation of an object, uh, and then the image in perception, so the, the present um, phase of the image, uh, and then the image in recollection or memory after the encounter with the object, and then finally invention that um, sort of uh, moves to a, a higher gear and restarts the whole cycle again. Um, and so putting images into this genesis is to sort of re, um, revivify them. So an image just sort of treated as like, um, you know, some lines on a piece of paper or on a chalkboard or whatever has, um, has no sort of intrinsic meaning or value. It's just, yeah, just, a you know, some, uh, ink, uh, embedded in some fibers, um, or some, you know, bits of chalk, uh, on a, on a board or whatever. Um, it's only when that, set of marks is um, incorporated into practices of, you know, the way that they're used for, uh, say, a geometrical demonstration or to make up an artwork um, or some, or, you know, as part of a, um, a technical object, etc. Um, it's only when these images are incorporated into something greater that they have um, meaning and value and uh, contribute to the functioning of that greater whole. Um, and so um, what, what we're doing when we do this phenomenology in Simon Don's sense, um, which is quite different from like Husserlian phenomenology or, or Heideggerian or anything like that, um, is to um, yeah, make, make these images live again, um, where, whereas they sort of have a tendency to kind of fade away. Like um, you can think of this, for example, in the use of metaphor, where and something might be introduced by a poet um, as a, a metaphor and it has a, a certain uh, has a novelty and uh, a power to evoke an image um, that um, that you know hasn't been used before. Uh, but then, as it becomes sort of uh, a, a, like an everyday phrase, people don't even think about what the the image it evokes is anymore. So you can think of like there's so many phrases in Shakespeare, for example, where he's the first person to or recorded at least to use these phrases. Um, but then that have become like cliches in our uh, our everyday language now. Um, 
so like at some point these were you know poetic creations that that evoked an image or that um had a a, a symbolic meaning or some something very powerful uh but that gets sort of faded away over time and just becomes a, a cliche that people use without even thinking about the meaning um uh and so to sort of uh retrace the genesis or to um perform this act of phenomenology or saving the phenomena means to sort of re recapture that power that the image had in its initial creation um, to sort of revivify the image in that sense. Um, and, uh, and so it, it's, it's in this sense that Simon Don describes it as um, um, re revealing the desire of things to exist a second time by being born again in a meaningful universe. Um, and, and so here we, we have this... Um, communication between the past and the present and, and then through the present with the future. So you can you can look at an artwork from ancient Greece or a poem from ancient Greece or um, or Shakespeare or whatever. It, it's obviously created in a very specific cultural context, which is very different from ours. Um, but um, but it's uh, through this act of creative reappropriation of the image, this uh, phenomenology, um, we are able to connect or um, appropriate this artwork from a very different context and uh, grasp it as something universal. Um, so like we can read Homer, you know, most of us in translation, not in the original, but um, we can read Homer. And um, like if we think of sort of the cultural context in which these poems were produced, it was probably essentially like propaganda for particular rulers that, you know, showing their um, uh, claim to, to legitimacy and their lineage and so on. Um, but the value of this work for um, artistic uh, or aesthetic um, um, enjoyment is much greater than like the particular purposes that it was created for. Um, so um, yeah, you can, you can make these images of the Homeric poem uh, come to life again through tracing the Genesis um, and, and, um, situating them in connection with um, sort of the project of um, human human life in general. Um, and so in that sense, you make them universal. Yeah, I think the connection with Hegel here is an interesting one. So this is what Angus has put, has put in the chat about um, connection with, with Hegel. Um, uh, so for Hegel, um, art, of course, is one of the um, um, elements of absolute spirit or domains of absolute spirit. Uh, so this is something where the distinction between subject and object is overcome in some sense. Um, so there's a sort of unity of subject and object. So this is the case in, um, in art, religion, and philosophy, and, and you know, primarily in philosophy, but, um, but also in religion and, and art. Um, um, for Simon Don, I mean, Simon Don doesn't talk a lot about religion, or at least he doesn't have a, an explicit philosophy of religion the way that Hegel does. Um, but the role of art, um, I think, maybe is similar in some sense uh, because it, it's sort of prior to the, or it's not restricted to something subjective. So like we were talking a little bit before we started recording about Kant. Uh, for Kant, aesthetic uh, aesthetics has to do with uh, a subjective um, uh, factor of enjoyment of, a, of an artwork. Um, but it has this sort of, um, by describing something as beautiful, you you make a claim to universality. You're not just saying, this art, this artwork produces pleasure in me, but you're saying that um, everyone should have pleasure in uh, perceiving this artwork. Um, 
And and for Kant, this is a, a very sort of complicated and difficult um, logical problem of how to um, explain how like something very subjective and particular like pleasure can have this objective value in the artwork or this universalizability in the artwork. Um, but for Simon Dom, I think um, the idea is that we we're not starting from like a subjective enjoyment and then trying to figure out how how do we universalize this. Um, instead, we're looking at the artwork as uh, like the individuation, the genesis of an artwork. Um, and the factor of subjective enjoyment is sometimes um, accessory to the creation of the artwork, like in the case of these, these uh, opticalized um, objects that you just apply this high-vis tape to it or something, uh, or like, yeah, the Baroque type of thing with the application of flowers to uh, uh, a column. Um, so yeah, the subjective enjoyment side is, is sort of um, secondary to the actual creation of uh, an aesthetic object. And I think maybe this is why Simone Don thinks surrealism is so important, um, is that, you know, the this factor of subjective enjoyment of, you know, taking pleasure in an artwork is kind of, um, uh, I don't want to say eliminated in surrealism, but at least it's not foregrounded in the same way as it is in, in prior artistic movements. So you're not necessarily expected to, you know, experience pleasure in observing uh, surrealist artwork uh it might be actually quite disturbing uh you can think of like dali's stuff with like um uh the, the film i think i forget what it's called but with like the razor blade in the eye um which is obviously not like pleasant to watch um so yeah i think um this kind of separation between pleasure and the artwork is maybe um where where the artwork for simon has this um I don't know, want to say absolute status like in Hegel, but like it, it's something that is not sort of limited to um, the subjective enjoyment of a of a person. Yeah, and that's oh, yeah. So you, you can sort of fit it into the Kantian um, framework by saying, yeah, there's a, a purpose. There's something purposive about a, a surrealist artwork. It's not just a random, you know, collection of colors on a canvas or um, uh, or you know, uh, random uh, collection of words on a page, for example. Um, so it, it it has a an intention or a a, a goal a directedness to it, um, but at the same time you can't sort of say like this is the purpose of this artwork. Um, it's it's sort of elusive. Um, the 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 purpose is elusive in that sense. Um, so yeah, that that does fit with the Kantian framework, but um, in in a different way than his notion of uh, the artwork as being related to pleasure. Yeah, and this is an interesting question. Is there always a purpose to an artwork? Um, and and there there have been, uh, like, I don't know this sort of uh, tendency that well, but there have been people who have tried to, um, you know, use randomness in their artwork or mechanical methods that sort of, um, to some extent, at least eliminate purposiveness. So, like, you, um, um, uh, what, what's the name of the school? I can't remember. There's a, a group of poets, in uh, French poets, who, um, you know, try to use, like, sort of... Um, random generation methods. Yeah, I think it was Ulipo, um, yeah, who like, um, yeah, used sort of random generation methods of like, um, like picking words out of a box uh, and, you know, creating poetry through um, sort of conjunctions of words selected randomly as opposed to, um, you know, with a, a sort of intention of the poet to evoke a, an idea or an emotion or, or whatever. Um, so, um, yeah, I guess this is uh, an, uh, a sort of method to try to eliminate purpose, but at the same time, there's like a purpose of 
a purpose of eliminating the purpose, if that makes sense. Like the the whole project of um, using this random method is itself set up by uh, the artist as uh, a goal. Um, and like you see this m with sort of contemporary art um, where the um, the object itself, the painting or sculpture or whatever it is, is always accompanied by an artist statement of some kind that explains like, you know, I created this object using this method of randomization um, uh, or, you know, this is sort of the the concept behind this artwork. Um, and so there's always like an accompaniment of explanation of the artwork. And so like the um, this artist statement sort of expresses uh, a purpose in some sense, even if the purpose is to not have a purpose or something like that. Um, yeah, so there, it's, it's, it's hard to avoid something like a purpose um, in general in the artwork, I think. Yeah, and 61 has pointed out that even a frame of a painting is already a kind of like uh, quasi explanation. You're already sort of setting off the realm of the painting from the um, from the you know surrounding space. You're making a, a sort of boundary around the painting and saying this is the the world of the painting that you sort of are supposed to separate from the rest of the world. Um, and and you have artists who do things like. Um, um, I forget who it is. There, there's the artist who um, cuts the canvas, like puts a slash in the canvas, um, which is again so, sort of sort of um, separate. I don't know, disrupting this expectation of the canvas as like a closed space, um, so that you like the canvas is already sort of open to the rest of the world in a way that it normally isn't. Um, um, so yeah, like you, you can sort of play with these. Um, uh, conventions or like ideas, but it, you're always um, in some way um, expressing um, expressing some purpose or working in relation to some purpose, even if that purpose is something like not expressing a purpose. Um, so yeah, it's uh, it's a uh, it's very difficult to think of an artwork that wouldn't have any relation to purposiveness at all. Um, I can continue reading. Uh, yeah, that, that would be great. Um, yeah, since I cut you off after one paragraph. I can read it. I'll just read about a... Well, I can just read at the end of this section. Yeah, sure. Um, <clears throat> there's a logical relation between the three types of formalization of an object so that the same object can, over time or by migrating from one culture to another, change category, sacredness, technicity, art. Contemporary cargo airplanes are revered by the indigenous people of Port Moresby, a quote-unquote cargo cult, who built landing strips and a perfunctory control tower in their villages to invite the planes to land. Such a category shift is possible because they attribute the creation of the planes to their, to their ancestors and consider whites as mere thieves and the current holders, but not the true builders of the planes. The passage from technicity to the sacred without any modification of the object is made possible by pushing the origin of the object into the past not a historical past, but the absolute past of original, ancestral, and mythical sources. The category of the sacred is that of the absolute and original past, that is, implying and bearing the present existence of the individual and collective subject. Uh, the paternal abode or the domain of the ancestors as an object constructed and organized by primordial beings with respect to our existence is clothed with sacredness. Conversely, the aesthetic object is entirely coherent with respect to itself, only within a perspective whose vanishing point lies in an indeterminate future. The sacred eludes any causality <clears throat> that is historically assignable 
by going towards the indefiniteness of the past in the same manner that the true aesthetic essence eludes any assignable finality by going towards the indefiniteness of the future. The sacred is beyond causality, and the aesthetic is beyond the functional. However, within the technical object that is of the present, the close interaction of the causal and the functional produces the greatest possible proximity between the created object and natural reality, both of which diverge within the sacred and aesthetic categories. Technical invention is perfected by the inner resonance of the produced object, that is to say, by the situation in which each subset modulates all the others. A naive invention, quote-unquote naive invention, orders its different subsets according to a finality and in a unidirectional manner in order to reach a result. The various subsets thus act as recruited and situated accessories. Finality thereby remains provisionally superior to the relays of causality that are subjected to it. But perfecting consists in elevating the level of intrinsic compatibility by tightening the linkage between subsets, which amounts to bestowing on each of them a power to modulate the structure of the others as an organism according to a process of individuation. It would be possible to study the conditions that facilitate invention among individuals and groups, a rather large number of techniques for facilitating invention or for increasing the level of creativity have been presented, for instance, in Osborne's quote-unquote brainstorming. Such techniques are often stated in the form of negative rules, the rejection of prejudice, customs, hierarchic relations, of systematic and critical attitudes, the quote, think up or shut up, unquote, of Osborne. Positive rules are fuzzier, try inverting solutions that already exist, attempt to suppress one element, etc. In truth, The spirit of these methods, beyond their general aspect of opening a field of research, tends to eliminate the modes of mental activity producing strictly univocal representations, such as systematic deduction, to make room for the genesis in the form of images of complex and non-univocal representations through transposition, inversion, or change of scale. Technical invention can therefore serve as a paradigm for processes of creation that take place in other domains, more generally Problem resolution in groups is fostered by everything that increases the polyvocality of representations and the plurality of attitudes in each member of the group. Role change is one of the means for progressively substituting a structure of hierarchizing finality with a state of inner resonance in the group. The group becomes an organism to the extent that each member modulates the others. It is then that a group becomes capable of creation rather than remaining a hierarchized system of execution. There is a possible linkage between creativity within the group and the intensive, the inventive attitude in the individual. The Socratic dialectic is one of the most illustrious examples of it. The group discovers meanings and succeeds in solving a problem by inventing itself as an organism. The concrete distribution of doctrines, of attitudes, and of specialties across members of the group gives, in a way, living substrate to representations. Each state of the relations between members materializes an attempt to combine principles. A group organizes itself to the extent that, through its exchanges, each of the members modulates all the others. Um, This kind of dense point about the temporality of the sacred and the work of art and the technical object is interesting. I'm not sure what he means by this idea that the aesthetic object uh, has a vanishing point that lies in an indeterminate future. Maybe this is kind of what we've been talking about with the Kantian point about the uh, 
inability to subordinate the work of art to a concept or we were talking about in the chat the surrealist work of art that doesn't doesn't have a resolution um, for the problem that it poses and sort of indefinitely defers it would be one way I guess of thinking of this um, the uh, future oriented aspect of the work of art and then I guess the point about the sacred is just that it's because its causality is so absolutely past it's it it's inexplicable um, it's just uh, Causality is like indefinitely remote, so that it, the origin of the sacred itself can't be explained. Yeah, I think um, the this idea of the indefinite vanishing point of the aesthetic object in the this indeterminate future. I think this has to do with the way that an aesthetic object can always be sort of reappropriated in the future. So, like what I was talking about earlier about how. Um, the Homeric poems, for example, are produced in one very specific cultural context, um, but they can be appreciated in a completely different cultural context thousands of years later, um, and they can be used as like a source. Um, um, like we find uh, Shakespeare, I don't think he ever uses Homeric poems, but like he uses sort of ancient Greek sources um, or um, medieval sources, and then he completely um, sort of reinvents those sources and produces something completely new in, in a very different cultural context. Um, so, uh, an artwork that has, uh, true aesthetic value is something that can always be reappropriated or reinvented in indefinitely many ways in the future. It's, it's never, you can never sort of exhaust the meaning and say, okay, now we've like fully, um, we fully, um, sort of, you know, mind all the possibilities of the Homeric poems. And, and now they're like, um, you know, completely, uh, exhibited in you know all the artistic creations that have been produced since then um there's always going to be more you can do with those poems or m new things you can invent on the basis of those poems um so yeah i think that's the sense in which an aesthetic object has this uh indefinite future orientation to it uh, and then yeah this, this is sort of like the counterpart to the sacred object which has this indefinite um orientation towards the past where um yeah, the, the realm of uh, ancestors or sort of the origin of the world or something like that is is this um, past before every historical past. Um, so, like, it's not just that, you know, this realm is like, you know, a certain number of generations ago or, or like a determinate uh, distance in time in the past, but it's like a past before every um, historically determinable past. Um, so, yeah, it's... Um, um, it's yeah, this indefinite past that uh, uh, is prior to every determinate past, and it's it's um, prior to causality or um, beyond causality in the sense that um, the relationship between this um, uh, indeterminate past and the present is not one that you can understand in terms of in terms of how one set of events brings about the other. Um, it's um, like in in history as a sequence of events you can say how you know this event caused this other event or made it more likely or something like that um but this sort of sacred realm prior to history um doesn't have that relationship of causality with history uh, you can't say that um the sacred realm sort of brings about um events in history uh and then in the case of the technical object these two um these sort of future and past orientations uh, uh, coincide in the sense that causality and finality are are linked together. Um, 
so you have, um, again, this is um, what he, he goes through in a very condensed form in, uh, in, in that paragraph, but he talks about um, the way that in a, he talks about this process of concretization of a technical object. So in an abstract technical object, you have one, uh, the, the whole object is sort of uh, subordinated to an external goal. You have um, a goal of, you know, producing a certain type of effect, and then you put components together uh, in such a way that each component contributes one um, sort of element to the that effect. Um, but then as the technical object becomes more and more concrete, the subordination to that finality is less and less important. And then the functioning of the technical object becomes more and more integrated and more and more like a living organism where every um, element of the organism has uh, a plurifunctional role and uh, um, they all sort of interact with each other uh, rather than being all subordinated to uh, a sort of external goal. Um, so like uh, a plant or an animal or any living organism doesn't have a sort of finality in the sense of an external goal, but it um, it has a sort of internal finality in the sense that it produces its own existence. Um, it continually makes itself continue to exist by appropriating uh, energy and nutrients and so on from the environment. Um, so yeah, th this is, uh, and, and technical objects, um, he, in the book on the mode of existence of technical objects, he says that technical objects can never fully reach this level of integration of a living organism, but they continually approach that level as they become more and more concrete. Uh, and then we have this bit about um, um, techniques of invention. And I, I put this in the chat, there's a slight translation, maybe not error, but um, issue, I would say that um, they translate it as techniques um, of invention. And I think that's probably not a good translation. I think techniques is better, but it, in French, it's the same word. Um, um, so it, he's talking about like, these sort of uh, creativity um, in eliciting exercises that like, uh, um, you know, you, you sometimes, I don't know if anyone's experienced this at work where you have like these sort of um, sessions where you're supposed to like come up with ideas and, and uh, you know, these exercises to get, make people more creative. They're usually pretty boring and I don't think they're very success, uh, successful, but um, yeah, exactly. Yeah. So they're, they're just sort of like, um, exercises that you do like for the purpose of checking off a box more than anything else um but uh he so here Simon was looking at like to what extent is something like a technique of creativity possible because there's there's a certain um contradictory element to this um idea right because creativity is something that is um you know productive of novelty or of um something that doesn't already exist um but insofar as you have like a technique or a, a set of rules to follow for like how to be creative, you're like you're already not being creative, right? You're you're like following some rules that are already given. Um, and so he points out that the the sort of negative rules are more effective than the or more specific than the positive rules. Like so, things like um, in this idea of brainstorming as a a sort of um, exercise of creativity. The, so one of the important negative rules is to um, not reject ideas. Um, at the outset. So you just sort of throw ideas on the wall and um, eventually, like, it's only later after you have a bunch of ideas that you actually do a sort of triage and, and figure out, like, which of these ideas is actually useful or workable or whatever. Um, and so this this sort of absence of a, a censorship of, of your ideas is important in um, uh, sort of allowing these ideas that, you know, in a 
a more restrained um, exercise you might not uh, actually put forward. But um, here in this sort of formal brainstorming session, you put forward every idea and you don't actually criticize or reject ideas until later on. Um, but then when he talks about some of the like positive rules that you can suggest for brainstorming, he says these are like not really that useful. Um, so things like uh, take an existing object or process or whatever, and then try removing one of the elements and see what results. Um, so this is like, um, yeah, not that specific. Like it, it doesn't really um, tell you what to do. And, and I think in general, if you try doing this with like, say a technical object, if you try removing one element of the technical object, most of the time it's just going to produce a, a broken technical object. It's not going to produce anything uh, useful. Um, so yeah, this positive rule is not like that helpful most of the time. Um, but um, yeah, it's, it's, there's, um, I think the, what's, what Simon Do sees as like the, the core sort of valuable um, product of these sort of brainstorming exercises is not so much like that it would be sort of a, a way of boosting your creativity by 17% or whatever um, that like, you know, these kinds of seminars advertise um, themselves as doing. Um, but it's the idea of producing um, a different kind of image. Um, so instead of these univocal images, so like uh, images that have one uh, determinate meaning or one determinate purpose or something like that, instead you produce these polyvocal images. So um, again, this is related to this point of con concretization. So the images, um, instead of having just one function or one meaning, they, they have multiple functions and multiple meanings. Um, and so this allows for them to be sort of rearranged and put together in different ways that um, maybe were not foreseen when the images were first produced. Um, and, uh, and so like in, in terms of a creative process, something like um, producing a musical work, for example, sometimes you can like, uh, say, take um, a melody and play it backwards and see, you know, does that produce something um, interesting or um, valuable? Um, uh, or you can like, take parts uh, like in, in uh, sampling, for example, you take an existing musical work and you sort of chop it up into bits and rearrange those bits and produce a new musical work that has a completely different um, aesthetic value. So you're, um, these kinds of uh, musical images have more than a purely, um, than, than a strictly univocal uh, function. They, they have this polyvocal function that allows them to be rearranged and connected in, in different ways and produce new effects. And then this last bit in this section, um, he very briefly talks about the relationship between groups and creativity. And um, we can connect this also with individuation, where he talks about um, collective individuation um, and this notion of the trans individual. Um, so this is something that is not, strictly speaking, it, um, confined to one individual person as an already individuated being. Uh, and it's, not all, it's also not just um, something that belongs to um, a group of people in the sense of you know, multiple already individuated beings. Um, it's something that is brought about through the actual process of individuation of a group, of a, of a collective. Um, so it's insofar as the collective forms something uh, like an individual, um, that it has this relationship to the trans individual um, element of reality. Um, and, and this is closely connected with creativity because a group is only um, um, the group 
only is an individual insofar as it creates something new. It, it, um, the, the formation of the group is a kind of invention as opposed to, say, the, um, the formation or the, I guess you can say, the recruitment of individuals into something like an existing structure that, that already has rules for people. Um, so, for example, when you get hired by a company or you um, um, start, you enroll as a student at a school or something like that, you already have these assigned roles in this institution um, of, you know, this is what my job is, this is what my uh, functions as a student at this institution are, etc. Um, this is not uh, an instance of collective individuation. Um, but when you, uh, maybe something like an artistic collective, for example, you you don't necessarily know what your role is in this group. You um, you have to um, you have to sort of collectively figure out how you're going to work together. You know what what are the rules and structures that you need to make that um, interaction work with each other. Um, so just by virtue of forming that collective, you are inventing something new. Yeah, and and yeah, you're right. Uh, this is the the new is something hard to get to. So for Simon Don, this collective individuation or even at the level of the individual is never something um, that's sort of given to us easily. It's something that we have to go through a, a process and it requires, you know, work and, um, and yeah, like a, a sort of a experimentation to bring it about. It's not something you can just say, I'm going to be creative today or something. And anyone who's like, you know, uh, tried to write uh, creative, you know, creative writing or, or even nonfiction writing, um, if you just sort of sit down and say, I'm going to create something today, it, it often doesn't really work. You just have to sort of plug away and, um, um, you know, only uh, after a hard process of, you know, uh, pushing through writer's block or, you know, multiple drafts that you uh, maybe end up throwing out and restarting, etc. It's only after all this work that you sort of realize, yeah, I actually have created something new. This is something that, you know, didn't exist before I actually started this this process. Okay, so let's go on to the conclusion. Um, yeah, we may not get through it today, but that's fine. Um, um, would either of you, uh, uh, aside from Angus, would you like to read or should I read? Uh, I can read a little bit. Sure. Uh, yeah, so let's go through. Uh, I don't think there. oh yeah, there are some headings in the conclusion. So maybe just read up to like from the start to the, the next heading on the next page. Okay, so conclusion. Recapitulation. The first three parts of this course study the genesis of the image across the stages of a direct cycle of growth, development, and saturation of a sub-individual component of the mental activity under consideration, more or less like an organism or an organ within a larger organism. The last part sought to show how, when the saturation point of that component is reached, a saturation point that depends on the capacities of each living being to organize information, there is, in the course of a critical process globally designated as invention when its results are positive, a change of structure, which is also a change in order of magnitude through the implementation of a reciprocity between the sub-individual elements, images in a state of symbol, and the directing lines of a superset, which during the three preceding stages did not exist in a state of actuality, but only in the form of constraints, limits, or sources of information that are outside the living being. This means that invention, induced by a need for internal compatibility, occurs through 
and is expressed in the position of an organized system that includes the living being through which it emerges as a subset. Formally comparable to a change of milieu, the wish to find a new milieu is in fact one substitute for failed invention. Invention is distinguished from the image pre images preceding it by the fact that it performs a change in the order of magnitude. It does not stay within the living being as a component of its mental equipment, but steps over the spatiotemporal limits of the living to connect with the milieu which it organizes. The tendency to transcend the individual subject which is actualized through invention is in fact contained virtually in the three previous stages of the image cycle. The amplifying projection of the motor tendency prior to the experience of the object is an implicit hypothesis of the deployment within the world. The perceptual classes serving as a subjective system for the reception of incident information, posits a universal application. And finally, the symbolic bond of mem memory images, while it expresses the attachment of the subject to the situations that constituted its history in a centripetal direction, it also and above all prepares for the use of reversibility, which converts this bond into a pathway towards things. In none of the three stages of its genesis is the mental image limited by the individual subject who carries it. It is this relative exteriority that is realized in invention by the position of created objects serving as organizers of the milieu. A created object is not a materialized image, nor is it placed arbitrarily in the world like an object among other objects in order to overload nature with an artificial supplement. It is, through its origin and remains through its function, a linkage system between the living and its milieu, a double point in which the subjective world and the objective world communicate. Among social species, this point is triple, since it becomes a pathway of relations between individuals, organizing their reciprocal functions. In this case, the triple point is also a social organizer. For all these reasons, the system of created objects within the double perspective of the relation with nature, which tends through the working of this system to become the organized superset of compatible territories and of the relation with the social as a superset of functions that may be organized as synergy, constitutes the envelope of the individual. Thanks. Yeah, this bit is um, somewhat dense, um, but he's, he's definitely making references back to the book Individuation, um, this notion of, uh, uh, or this, this sort of um, paradigm example of the, the crystal um, that, you know, he works with throughout that book. Um, so again, we have this uh, supersaturated solution, um, and then we have the germ uh, crystal that uh, enters into this solution or is formed through random fluctuations. Um, uh, and then we have the crystallization that proceeds around the limits of the germ crystal. Uh, so the solution gradually crystallizes from one um, from one layer to the next. Uh, and this is his sort of model for individuation in general, of course, applied in, in very different um, forms in, in different domains. Um, so here, when he's talking about the image, um, we have this process through which the image becomes saturated. So the image passes from um, um, sort of a uh, an anticipation of, um, so th these are sort of the categories in which we um, expect to find things. So we have these concepts of, you know, what a dog looks like, what a cat looks like, um, et cetera. And then we classify the images of the entities that we see in the world or perceive in the world. We classify them under these categories. Um, we, we assign, you know, this 
object in front of me is you know fits the image of a dog, for example. Um, these are sort of very basic types of images. Um, but then we have this this whole cycle of the image that we've gone through throughout this book, where the image becomes saturated, and so it become it takes on this symbolic function. Uh, so these are things like in in the chapter we we read on symbols. Um, he talks about how the flag, for example. Um, in terms of like materiality, it's just a piece of cloth with like some colors on it, um, but it can have you know all sorts of um, effective resonances and importance for you know people who actually uh, die to protect a flag on the battlefield, for example. Um, um, so yeah, the these um, objects when they become symbols or when the image becomes a symbol, it um, it takes on uh, this sort of saturated. Um, character that has this uh power that sort of goes beyond itself um and um invention here is uh, a change in order of magnitude in the same way that we saw in um individuation there's this um in the book individuation the process of individuation involves a, a linkage or connecting different orders of magnitude so his example that i think is the the sort of um key example for this is the way that a plant um integrates or makes a connection between like a, a molecular level of uh, order of magnitude. So, you know, all the different nutrients that are in the soil, for example, and then a sort of cosmic level um, by absorbing energy from the sun. Uh, and then it produces uh, the, the plant as an organism, which is a, an intermediate level of uh, order of magnitude. Um, so um, this is sort of like this kind of um, bridging orders of magnitude process is, is, uh, part of what Simon Dom um, sees the whole process of individuation as involving. Um, and so again, in the invention of a technical object, for example, you are like bridging between um, uh, or uh, passing from one order of magnitude to another, um, where you have these saturated images that have this symbolic function, uh, and then you um, move to a higher um, order of magnitude and then restart the whole cycle of the image again. Uh, and then, so Simon Don takes this like whole cycle of the image to to show that the image is not something um, restricted to the individual subject. So obviously, images only there only are images insofar as there are um, entities that treat and that treat things like images um, or that um, have a sort of imaging um, function in them. So uh, primarily animals um, and and then human beings as specific types of animals. Um, but at the same time, the image is not reducible to something within the subject because um, there's always this relation to something outside the subject um, that is part of what makes something into an image. Uh, and then he, he points out that um, so the image connects the, the living being with its milieu, with the, the environment in which it lives. Uh, it is something that points beyond the living being into the rest of the world. Uh, and then also in social organisms like human beings, it connects one individual with another. Um, so like he, he talks about in, in earlier parts of the book, how um, we can uh, sort of externalize our thoughts, something that, you know, might be it, in, in some respect is, is confined to our own mind by making it something uh, symbolic, something that is uh, realized in an object outside of my mind. Um, it, it becomes something that someone else can take up and then they can, uh, you know, uh, understand what I thought or experienced or felt or whatever. Um, and then they can transform those symbols and create something new with those symbols. Um, 
So it, the, the externalization of uh, an image into an object, uh, whether it's an artistic production or um, a technical object or whatever, um, this externalization allows that um, object that is playing the role of an image to, um, to link between me and some other uh, person um, that, you know, they might not even know who I am. They might find my artwork thousands of years after my death and, uh, um, you know, put it in a museum or study it in, in terms of its artistic um, value and so on. But, um, yeah, so the, the, my creation is something that is independent of me um, that exists in the world and someone else can, can pick it up and, you know, do other things with it. Okay, uh, let's go on to the um, molecular. Um, so you, you're talking about when I when I mentioned the the bit about the plant, um, the molecular level, and uh, yeah, um, yeah. I think so. In the in the case of the plant, it's more concrete because we can actually think of like actual you know physical molecules that the plant absorbs from the soil and uh, and things like that. Um, 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 it's a bit more sort of abstract at the level when we're talking about images because of course the images are not like physically you know bumping into each other or moving around. It's it's um, a kind of individuation of images in like a um, a space of images uh if if we want to put it that way um so we have to sort of picture the realm of images as like almost this like he says here the 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 images or the uh created objects that result from the images um are a kind of envelope of the individual so we can think of like uh an animal including a human being as sort of surrounded by this um like world of images that sort of um envelops that that individual organism um uh but extends beyond the organism into the rest of the world as well yeah the, the was, sorry, oh, sorry. good uh yeah i was just going to respond to this comment in the chat about this collective unconscious um and this is a, a concept that's associated with Jung. um and simon Don has in a couple of places um expressed some sympathy for Jung's work um um i think for him he the one thing that he sort of criticizes or where, where he separates himself from Jung is that he doesn't think this collective, whatever we want to describe as like a collective realm of the unconscious can't be made up of sort of already constituted uh, concepts or already constituted images. Um, so like Jung talks about like these archetypes um, and then you have people, um, uh, what's his name, the guy, the thousand story, the thousand faces of the hero or whatever, um, I forget his name now, but anyway, he's like a following Jung. Um, um yeah joseph campbell that's that's one and uh, uh george lucas you know sort of modeled star wars on on his uh you know account of narrative um um and uh yeah so there's like um this idea that there's like this already constituted structure of this collective unconscious and for simon don um there, yeah there can't be pre-formationism for the symbolic realm there can't be like these already constituted myths or this already constituted um figures of like the hero or whatever um, so these, whatever we want to think of as this sort of, uh, equivalent of the collective unconscious, whatever exactly Simon Don would describe it as, um, it's something that, um, is prior to individuation. It's something out of which we individuate, um, symbols and, and stories and so on. Um, so it's, it's not, um, it's not something that is already constituted. It's like a, a sort of reservoir out of which we constitute things like stories. Uh, this reference to... The third term, the triple point as a social organizer. Uh, I was just reading one of Bruce Fink's books on Lacan, and so I have 
this real symbolic imaginary division in mind. Um, but it seems like, and Simon Don did mention Lacan earlier in the book. Uh, also, I think with reference to the symbolic, when he was talking about Sartre and the this dyadic versus triadic um, distinction between the two thinkers. But I, I wonder if Simon Don has Lacan in mind or something similar to the Lacanian symbolic is that which uh, structures the, I understand the imaginary is just like the, the empirical world that we kind of consciously inhabit. And it also makes me wish that Simon Don, I know he never, he doesn't talk that much about language and individuation. Um, I wonder if he would see it as, as an invention or, um, I don't know. I guess I just wonder how the how language would fit into this, uh, whether it would be an invention or something that sort of pre-exists and facilitates invention, or kind of a mixture between the two. Yeah, that's an interesting question. I, I know some of the secondary literature. Um, I can't remember who exactly, but um, uh, someone someone has pointed out that um, language is sort of like the big um, missing piece in Simondon that he almost never talks about, like what role language plays in human existence or mental life or anything like that. Um, um, and I think in relation to Lacan, I think like Simon Don is in a lot of ways sort of an anti-structuralist um, or like he's, he's almost uh, like, it, it's not always, I mean, he, he's, he's not like a polemic author. He doesn't like sort of uh, set up someone else and, and say this person is wrong and here's why I'm different than this person. Um, he just sort of does his own thing. Um, but I think, um, this idea that there's like a, a sort of pre-existing structure in which um, we have to like uh, this, the idea that subjectivity, for example, is like structured by um, this symbolic level of language. Um, I think Simon Don would see that as too sort of restrictive um, and not accounting for the creativity of the subject. Um, that, of course, as a as a, a subject, as a human being, um, we exist within a particular um, time and place and social context and so on. Um, and we always, like, we always only exist within that uh, sort of context and determination. Um, but at the same time, we're not sort of bound to only sort of play a role um, within, like, a sort of pre-existing role within a set of functions that is assigned by a structure. Um, um, so for Simon Don, like, there's always this creativity that is allowed to um, take take an existing structure, take an existing institution, and then sort of reinvent it. Um, 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 so yeah, it's um, it's it's a, a more subtle, I think, and ambiguous um, relationship to um, yeah this this notion of like to what extent is um, human existence or mental life in particular. Um, determined by something outside of the individual um, subject. Uh, and for Simon Don, of course, we, like, as we've been talking about, there's always, these, these images always point beyond the subject. Um, so we, we, we don't have like a sort of self, self-contained subjectivity that, you know, uh, pulls itself up by its bootstraps um, or something like that. Um, there's uh, this sort of um, reciprocal relation between the world and the subject. Um, but at the same time, there's this creativity that is never fully reducible to the already existing structures of the world um, that I think Simon Don would see as sort of lacking in, um, in um, 
more structuralist accounts of subjectivity. But yeah, I'm a bit hesitant to sort of um, say exactly what the relationship is between Simondon and Lacan, because I only know Lacan's work very superficially. Um, and he's obviously like one of the most obscure writers of all time. So like, um, you know, pinning down what exactly he, he's asserting in any given text is quite difficult. Um, um, so yeah, it's, uh, I don't want to um, be too definitive in saying that Lacan is a, a sort of structuralist in the sense that um, I'm presenting Simon Dawes as being opposed to. Okay, uh, let's go on to the next bit. Um, hmm, I wonder, we may just be able to finish this passage. Uh, actually, yeah, that might be a good idea. Um, what does everyone think? Do we want to push through and see if we can finish, or do we want to save this last section for next time, which would be probably a short session? I would uh, vote for saving saving it for next time. Yeah, to give it more time as well. Yeah, that's that's probably a good idea. Um, yeah, we have no fixed schedule. We don't need to rush through it. So um, yeah, let's let's um, stop here. Uh, we'll we'll finish it next time. Um, there's some interesting. Yeah, there's a couple. Like he gives some references. And he talks about Bogdanov, which is pretty interesting because he was. Uh, yeah, we'll, we'll talk about that next time. But um, yeah, it's a pretty interesting thing for him to refer to because it was definitely not like top of mind in uh, 1950s or 1960s France um, when he's writing this. So yeah, that's uh, something we can talk about next time, um, and we'll we'll finish the book and uh, and then we can talk a little bit about um, what we want to do next. Uh, we've we've discussed that a bit, but we can make a, a final determination next week. That sounds great. <clears throat> okay, uh, so thanks everyone for coming out. Um, uh, thanks for your contributions um, and we'll finish up next time and then talk about what we want to do next. So uh, hope to see you all there.